Hey everyone, welcome back, and this is episode 50 of At the Coffee Table Podcast. I am Jason Clink, and I am uh, joined today from, or with, Gemma Alcock of Skybound Rescuer. Gemma is an award-winning innovator and thought leader in the use of drones for public safety. Uh, Gemma was selected in, in the prestigious competition of the woman making the most difference in drones for search and rescue around the world. And she received the title of Woman to Watch in UAS in 2018. Uh, Gemma, thank you for joining me today, here today. I really appreciate uh, your time. And, and uh, this is going to be a fun conversation for me. Yeah. Hello. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks. So uh, with my background in public safety with first responders, this is a real interesting conversation with me. And I was talking off camera with Gemma about how a few years ago I was working with a friend of mine. He had an emergency vehicle upfitting business. And we started to dive into the drone business um, based on what we saw as a viable tool for first responders and in particular in the fire service. Three years ago, it, it was very new to a lot of fire departments. Only the larger fire departments like New York City were purchasing uh, UAS and drones. Um, and a lot of, uh, of other departments just weren't ready to make that investment. And uh, the departments that were, were looking for a, kind of an all-in-one package. So they were looking for the machine, they were looking for the training, looking for the certification, and, and just wanted everything to come in it to be able to, to use this tool um, on the fire ground or on an emergency scene. So Gemma, you are in England and you have your Skybound Rescuer business. How did you get into UAS and in particular UAS, UAS for public safety? Yeah, so it's quite an untraditional career path. Um, I mean, when I started my career, it wasn't a career option. So I think everyone that's ended up here has not followed a traditional conventional career path. But for me, it was triggered by um, saving a life as a beach lifeguard for an organization over here called the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. So um, I was a lifeguard for them. And um, it was a really, uh, it, it was a major incident and I was first on scene. So I ran about 400 meters, swam out about 100 meters and, and dragged this uh, unconscious, unresponsive lady from the water. And uh, we were part, uh, the lifeguard team then did casualty care and brought her back to being alive and well. And unfortunately, this particular lady um, was trying to take her own life. And the actions of our lifeguard team gave her a second chance at life, which brought a whole new dimension to it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was a really profound um, experience. And I knew in that moment that I wanted to dedicate my career to advancing life-saving. And the first step on that journey was uh, dedicating my university dissertation to the RNLI, which is the um, lifeguard and lifeboat organization that I was, uh, I was volunteering for. And mm -hmm. um, my, the brief for my dissertation was very broad, um, nothing to do with drones. In fact, it was find a problem that they were experiencing and solve it with technology. And the problem that I found they were experiencing was finding people lost at sea uh, in darkness. It takes them three to four times longer to find mm -hmm. someone in darkness than it would in daylight, um, which could be the difference between life right. and death in, in man overboard um, circumstances, especially if they don't have a life jacket. Right. Um, 
And this was impacting between 25 to 40% of their annual searches, which is thousands of searches every year. Um, mm -hmm. Through that research, I found the asset that helps them the most is the Coast Guard helicopters, because they're higher up, so they can see more, they can search faster. And because of the technology right. that's on board to, you know, heat seeking capabilities and the such like. Um, right. So during darkness hours, the helicopters have an average, they take an average of 40 minutes between being requested and taking off before they even transit to the search area. Um, and in search and rescue, we have a golden hour. That's one hour to find them and get them to hospital for the best chance of survival. So during right. darkness hours, the helicopters were actually missing this window of opportunity most of the time. So the project became about, um, I wanted to give the benefit of the helicopters to the lifeboat crews, but instantly. And that's when it became drone technology. So it was very much research driven. As I said, I, I came into this from a life-saving search and rescue background. I, I was doing a technology degree, so I wanted to solve something in that space with technology. And the research took me to drone technology. So mm -hmm. yeah, definitely not a planned route. Um, that project then uh, went on to win a few awards. I became a consultant for the Arnolayan Coast Guard, and then it slowly developed um, into Skybound Rescuer, which is what it is today. Um, so yeah, definitely not a conventional um, career, and I probably prefer it that way, actually. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sure it's it, it keeps it interesting. And I know when I was learning about drones and UAS, especially for public safety, it was very fascinating. And what fascinated me, it was kind of what you spoke to, was the fact that you could bring a drone to a scene or close to a scene, launch it, and be in the air taking video or taking photos within minutes. Um, and, and we're in, in the States, we're kind of, there's a lot of areas, a lot of municipalities that are in the same boat of if there's a major incident or they needed that, that overhead view, they're waiting for a helicopter to launch. Uh, mm -hmm. And where I am, you know, that could be 30 or 45 minutes, depending if there's a crew on staff or not. Um, and if it's not, then they have to wait for the crew to get to the bird, to launch it, prepare it to launch, launch it, and they get get to the scene. And it, being able to to pull out a, a, a tool like a drone out of the backseat of anything and, yeah. and launch it within a few minutes, um, it, to me, is, is such a huge benefit to the, to the public safety uh, community. It's a, it's, a, it's a tool like thermal imaging. It's a tool like you know, in firefighting, it's a tool like the jaws of life or, or whatever it might be. Now, mm. do you do, are, are, is the majority of your clients your business in, in Europe or are you doing doing business all over the country? Um, so, yes, most of our um, uh, projects have been in the UK, but um, there's three, part, three main parts of our approach at Skybound. Mm. We research, we innovate, we educate, right? So, Research is still at the heart of everything we do. It's still a new space. We still need to do a lot of research around best practice. And mm -hmm. um, and then we innovate with emergency services um, to, uh, well, researching into best practice. Um, most of that has been around training and tactics. Um, and then we also work with the drone industry, um, which has been anything from hardware manufacturers to software developers to training providers, everything in between 
to make sure that there's the best possible products and services available for public safety. And then mm -hmm. the final part is we educate. And those education campaigns, they are either targeting the emergency services, they uh, or the drone industry or the general public to so that everyone is aware of what drones can, can do in public safety now and into the future. And that education piece has um, definitely reached over to um, America, um, Australia, uh, I've spoken in Dubai as well, lots of different countries. Um, I've been, I've traveled to, to be a keynote speaker on a lot of our research projects, sharing that knowledge to really ensure that what we're doing here in the UK um, is shared across the world. Um, and part of that, I'm uh, on the board of advisors for Drone Responders, which is a public safety alliance in America. Um, and it's a community of people sharing best practice. Uh, so yeah, especially the education piece, that is definitely worldwide. We try to do it as much online as possible. Um, a lot more online the past year or so yeah. before that we were yep. going to conferences. Um, right. But it, <laughs> it's almost all online now. Um, so yeah, that part has is, got an international reach. Uh, the um the research part um one of our key innovations were um flight reference cards that we developed with essex police in the uk uh, mm -hmm. where we looked at where the um areas of skill knowledge um skill and knowledge phase were happening in drone pilots and so we catered the information around how best to ensure that's not happening especially in those emergency situations those flight reference cards we've sold almost 300 um, to 43 different emergency services uh, in six different countries. Um, and actually one of our biggest customers has been Canada um, for those. So okay. um, yeah, lots of different international projects, but predominantly we do work in the UK because that's where we are, but uh, a lot of our work has had international reach as well. Now on the business end of things, I mean, you're a relatively young, young person. Now, have you found it difficult or, or had some kind of pushback to people to say, well, you're, you're young into this or whatever it might be. Um, what are you going to teach me or how are you going to provide information for me when, because I, I know coming from like fire services, tough business. And we always used to tongue in cheek joke around how, unless you got five years under your belt, you don't know what the hell you're doing. Um, so do you find it well, difficult to, yeah. So I do find it difficult to, 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 to have broken into this arena and, and really have the influence that you've had uh, with the industry. I think um, the benefit to, uh, although, you know, public safety is archaic, it's been there for ages, right? Um, right drones right. and public safety is brand new, right? So yes. um, I, the timing that um, I came into this industry um well, there was barely any uh, emergency services in the UK using drones. And I know mm -hmm. that in 2000, until 2016, um, uh, no emergency service in the US were using drones um, right. because FAA put out a regulation against it. So yep. that means I was actually um, in the industry for two years before America started using them. Um, so although I'm really young, because the industry is very young, I'm actually one of the most experienced, um, which is a weird kind of concept. So yes, I do get that when um, people initially meet me, they realize very quickly that I'm a young female. Um, and 
then they hear what I've done and, and the research that I've already achieved and very quickly they, they realize that um, I'm not new to this. Um, I've also, I think it also helps that um, I'm coming uh, at this with a different perspective to most. A lot of um, people have either come from a technology background and they're trying to make it in public safety, but they have no public safety background or vice versa. They don't have a technology background. They're just public safety and they're trying to understand the technology. Whereas my background is in software, it's in technology. My degree was in technology. And then my personal voluntary background is all in search and rescue. And I've managed to develop them at the same time. I still volunteer for search and rescue. That has never stopped. Oh, okay. so I've been in, I've been in SAR for eight years. Um, I've been in drones for seven years. So, you know, I've managed to um, build them at the same time. Um, and also research speaks for itself as well. Yeah. If you're doing proper scientific research, people can't argue with that. So right. when they realize how much detail I've gone into this, I'm not mm -hmm. just coming at it as this is my opinion because of my experience or lack thereof. It mm -hmm. is, this is what the data is saying. Um, and I also try to engage as many stakeholders as possible in all of my research. So it's not just my opinion, it's everyone's opinion. Um, it's collating those opinions and finding what um, then is supported in the data. And it's, right. it's kind of that, that mixture of, of data-driven um, collaboration, but also the industry is new, I'm new, but that's okay because <laughs> it's almost an advantage. I was uh, managed to get in into the industry at the right time to, to be young and yet one of the most experienced in it. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, I love everything you said and, and you're very well spoken. So I can see how people, because you have that, the science background, the data, the data to prove what you're saying. Um, I think I, I can see where that would, would allow you to have the success that you've had. And I also <laughs> love what you said about public safety is archaic in nature, which is true. It's archaic in nature because most of public safety hates change. If you put forth change, especially technology change, um, it, it's it, there's a lot of push pushback. I, I can appreciate that as well because from yep. if from a different industry, right? When you change things, you're risking money, you're risking time. But in public yep. safety, when you're when you're changing things, you're risking lives, and it is right. just a whole different risk factor, right? So I yep. understand why people are sometimes risk adverse. Also, budgets um, are very, yeah. very strict as well. Um, yeah. So there's a mixture of there's some there's some big risks at, pay, at play there, and so I, I understand that. I also understand that when um, uh, you, you shouldn't underestimate the kind of emotional connection to the current state because they might have been uh, involved in creating that current state. So you've got to be that um, sensitive to to that emotional connection, especially when. Um, the most kickback I get from, is from people that are working with helicopters. They feel that we're trying to replace helicopters. I don't want that. Right. Um, it has never been, nor has it, will it ever be viable to task a helicopter to every emergency because of the sheer cost of it. But yes. someday it could be viable to send a drone. Right. So then we're, if we blend those services together, we're improving availability improving response times and just improving resilience of air support. So I don't see them as a replacement. They're, it's a blended service and together they're stronger. And one without the other is a weaker, a weaker offering. Yep, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we, I was just looking up something cause I wanted to bring it up to you and, and, and I will in a second, but I was, um, 
thinking about like when we started, when I was working with my friend and we started looking at the, the drone and UAS industry for public safety, a lot of the concern at the time, and like I said, this is probably three, four years ago, the concern at the time was security and security of the data. Um, all of a sudden it, it became an issue with China, that China was going to take the data because we were mostly dealing with DJI as a vendor. And there was a large concern about DJI extracting data from the U.S. and using it for the government's advantage in China. But I also remember DJI U.S. came out and said, listen, we don't use any data we're not supposed to use. Your data is your data. Have you seen that kind of ease a bit as far as those security concerns? Um, I think it is definitely still a, a concern. I don't think the, the UK and, and Europe um, have had the same level of concerns to, to the US. I think US have shown the most kickback to, um, to DGI's use of data. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's an area that's always going to improve because as we understand it better, there'll be better regulations in place. Um, and there's also going to be better, um, you know, data security, cybersecurity um, technologies in place. Mm -hmm. But we have to accept that ultimately a drone is a flying data collection device. Um, and so it's collecting data that is useful for us. And um, in order for manufacturers to improve their products, they, need, they often need that data in order to improve the product. So I think that has to yeah. be, obviously they have to be transparent about how and why they're using it. Um, yep. but it, like, I don't think use using people's or customers data is always for malicious purposes. And we, right. we need to like, as customers, um, accept that a little bit more as well. I see it like, um, I, think I saw this interview the other day of, um, Google CEO being questioned by Congress about the use of data and what it, what it does. Um, and it made me think it's like, if you ask a customer or user of uh, of Google services, like why do you ask Siri or why do you ask Google a question because it's quicker? Isn't it frustrating when it doesn't know the answer though? Well, in order to get better at answering those questions, it needs data, um, and and so it's a vicious cycle of we have these expectations and wants of the products, but we're not willing to give the data that is needed in order to teach these algorithms to do the service that we expect of it. Um, so I think that's a great analogy. It really is a great analogy that when you think about it is we give we Google hubs and your phone and, and everything else you give data really all the time, all day long. And then it, you know, perfect point is it like, if you want the, the product, the technology to improve, the data has to be able to be there to support it. Right. So I think there just needs to be better education as to why they need use of that data um, and to reassure people that it's not for malicious intent. Um, it is to improve their products. That is like almost always the purpose of collecting data, because mm -hmm. in order to create an AI, you create a machine learning algorithm. And when you first create that algorithm, it's like a baby. It like it, it knows very simple set of rules. Yes and no. Right and wrong. Um, and then you've you've got to feed it with data for it to mature and for it to learn. That's why it's called a machine learning algorithm. And it needs millions of data um, in order to learn, in order to move towards an AI that could be useful to anyone. Um, so 
yeah, data is so important and so useful for the future of um, robots, technologies, um, uh, drones, AI, all of these kind of um, futuristic technologies that we want and we need today. We've got to feed it with data. Sure, absolutely. I, you know, it's. I, I was thinking of uh, some of the agencies here in the states that that are using the the drone uh, technology. Uh, first thing that comes to mind is New York City. They they last I knew launched a drone at anything above a second alarm fire. I mean, they have tethering. They they're able to to download their instant instant data as as the incident unfolds. I thought of Chula Vista, California, who last I knew were launching a drone for any major incident right from the police station with a drone operator sitting in the 911 center. So this is happening, and I'm sure there's many others that I don't know about. Um, what advances in this technology have you just have you seen over the last couple of years that are really going to benefit first responders and public safety going forward? Yeah, so a quick note on Chula Vista's program. It's it definitely cutting edge, leading the way for the rest of the world. Um, it's kind of seen as the gold standard in most places. Um, mm -hmm. I know that in their first six-week trial, um, the use of the drone as a first responder, um, it's actually managed to lead to 79 arrests um, because it was so fast uh, that it was capturing the crime on camera. Um, mm -hmm whilst the emergency services got there. So that, that's incredible. Um, and what, I'm working on a, a similar project in partnership with HeroTech 8. They um, manufacture drone in the box stations, which ultimately are automation stations. You put the drone into it and um, uh, it can recharge the drone. And it also has a ground control station that you can upload your flight plans to through the internet. So you can basically task it from anywhere in the world. Um, oh, wow. And we're, we're looking at um, creating a network of these boxes around the UK for our emergency services to task it on demand to any emergency and to have that drone arrive at the emergency within five minutes of uh, request, which for our uh, compared to our helicopter services, that would be 10 minutes faster than the police helicopters and 45 minutes faster than the average Coast Guard speed as well. So, you know, game changing. Um, and I think wow. that is really the future of drones is going to be beyond visual line of sight, enabling that um, worldwide, because at the moment, drones are saving time, especially in the public safety space, because they have a higher height of eye advantage, they can see more. However, they are still limited in that they have to travel with the first responder in their car um, and then be set up, then launch, rather than being ready and waiting to go, fly ahead of the teams and be the first eyes on scene, which is what Chula Vista have set up and have had right. amazing results from already, which shows that the real potential of drone technology is yet to be seen fully um, until we unlock leave loss um, for everyone. So yeah, this, um, this network, we obviously we have to work with our CAA, our version of the FAA um, mm -hmm. on this, because it's so cutting edge that there are no regulations that allow it um, uh, operationally. It's a case by case um, basis at the moment. So we have to build our operational safety case, um, do a lot of trials, a lot of testing, but we have had investment from the government and we start testing in, in August. And um, then we go into trials between September and uh, April. So oh, wow. And that and that's in England? Yeah, that's in England, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you brought up, so the, and it just made me think of something else. So with the FAA, I know 
here, there, it, it's difficult at times to, to launch a drone, especially where I am. And where, where I am in central New York, we're right near a major airport. And for even for commercial drone operators, say it's a aerial photography for real estate, they find it tough to get approval if they're within, oh, I don't know what the radius, maybe it's five miles uh, of the airport. It's tough to get approval to, to, to do their work because of the FAA restrictions around those flight paths and so on. Have you seen any shift towards easing that or making it easier to be able to use a tool, especially for public safety, in order to avoid those lengthy delays by trying to get approval? There's been a lot of development in the regulations over here. Um, we've recently, as of the end, like um, uh, first of this year, um, mm -hmm. we transitioned onto EASA's um, drone regulations, which is basically the European um, Aviation Space, uh, space uh, Aviation Safety Agency. Um, and they uh, created a set of rules that um, for all EU countries to adopt, even though even after Brexit, we decided to adopt them so that we are the same for all, across all European skies. Um, mm -hmm. And that will at least standardize it um, so that no matter which uh, European country you're in, it's the same rules, which is a huge step forward. Um, that is for all drone pilots rather than just for public safety. In, in public, for public safety in the UK, we do have an exemption um which uh, allows uh in specific circumstances where there's immediate risk to human life um or it's a major incident like a flooding event um you can fly further uh you can fly higher and you can fly closer to objects um and that uh has to be approved by the incident commander rather than going through the caa which um, really speeds things up because obviously going through the CAA becomes a bit of a bottleneck because of communication, um, whereas right. the incident is going to be there um, and will have the knowledge uh, in terms of the risk anyway. Unfortunately, most of the time they don't have the knowledge of, of drones as such. Um, but uh, I think that has proven to be quite useful and I think that will probably develop further eventually into extended visual line of sight and beyond visual line of sight exemptions for our emergency services. That's great. That's great. So what do you see? At, how, how does your business play out going forward over, over the rest of this year? And what do you, what do you, you know, what do you have plans? What, what are the goals for you and your business as you go, go farther into this year? Yeah, so it's it's all around um, those trials that I was mentioning with the drone in the box. So um, that project is part of a um, of a consortium that's led by BT, which is a um, multi million pound company over here, it's British um, Telecoms, and um, there's seven companies within this consortium, and we're setting up a uh, airspace corridor that will aims to be the first commercial. Um, corridor for drone operations, basically. So emergency response is just one of the use cases that um, I'm um, managing with HeroTech 8, as I mentioned before. Um, but we're also looking at medical uh, deliveries and mm. infrastructure inspection um, as other use cases for that corridor of airspace. Um, separate to that, um, again, with HeroTech 8, um, I've been working on a paper that uh, reviews in quite a bit of detail um, the current state of air support 
in the UK for our emergency services, the weaknesses of those services to work out where a network of drones might fit into that to um, help improve those services uh, and what user requirements uh, could be expected of a network of drones. So first of all, what kind of tasks would it be expected of it? What kind of governance would be needed? Um, and everything in between It's very detailed. It's five chapters, hundreds oh, of wow. pages, painful amount of work, but um, <laughs> very important. You know, you got to got to put in that hard work to get the results at, at the end and that you're looking for. So I can appreciate that. Um, cool. I mean, th this has been super fascinating for me. Like I said, in the onset, uh, I, I, I find the technology just amazing. And it sounds like the work that you're doing in the UK is, is really going to transcend across, across the globe. Um, if uh, people wanted to connect with you, how, how would they find you? Yeah. So you can leave a, um, we're on all, uh, uh, you know, social media platforms, just uh, look for Skybound Rescuer or our website is skyboundrescuerproject.com. Um, and for our training products, we have a separate online store, which is skyboundrescuerstore.com. Awesome. Great. And if you know, you can't seem to, to locate Gemma and all the social media that's out there, feel free to drop a comment or, or send me a message. I'd be happy to connect you. Um, but she is on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn um and puts out a, a ton of content based around her work so um that's pretty awesome jim I, I appreciate you taking the time to join me here today like i said i think you provided a lot of value to those in public safety both uh abroad and uh in the us um and hopefully we can do this again uh going down the road and see how things uh, kind of transpire as the year goes on yeah yeah please let's, let's do it again it's been fun Absolutely. That's awesome. So with that, um, it, like I said, if anybody, if you find any value in this, please drop us a comment. Let us know what you think. Um, and if you want to share it with those within public safety, I think they would get a ton of value out of this. This is the At the Coffee Table podcast where we talk about anything and everything and hopefully bring some value to those out there. And for today, I hope everybody takes care of themselves and take care of each other. And everybody have a great day.